This morning we're going to go to Romans chapter 14 to start. Romans chapter 14 in your Bibles, if you want to follow along. We're going to read the first 12 verses together. And the, the topic of my message is uh, to approach this question that is in Christian circles, should the church celebrate Christmas at all? I'm not going to answer how we should celebrate it. The question is, should we celebrate it? And Paul gives us some principles to apply in answering that question, beginning here in Romans chapter 14. So we're going to read the first 12 verses together as we begin this morning. Romans chapter 14, starting at verse 1 down through verse 12. And if you follow along, it says, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let him, let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth. For God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand." One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it to the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day to the Lord he regardeth not, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God, so that every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Let's take a minute and pray before we get into our message this morning. Our Father, God in heaven, now we just come to you in worship, and as we approach your word, Lord, we need your help. You have given us your truth. You've given it to us as a source of information. It is a revelation of your truth to us and your message to us as your people about how to live. And so as we read in Romans today, I pray that you would guide us through your spirit. Help us to understand this principle that you give us here and be able to apply them in our lives so that we might be pleasing to you in all that we do. Lord, I pray now for strength for me, for physical strength, for strength of mind, strength of voice. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, and may your word be proclaimed boldly this morning so we might be challenged in your truth and just be conformed to your word in being uh, obedient hearers and not just hearers only. So Lord, just bless us, work in us, and do your work, and may you receive the glory during this time. And We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, there's the question in Christian circles today, should we celebrate Christmas? And as we embark in answering that question, we start here in Romans chapter uh, 14. In, In Romans chapter 14, Paul 
is giving some principles that fit into the category of what we would call Christian liberty, okay? What are we free to do within the liberty that God has given us in Christ? Now, Christian liberty does not mean that we're just free to do whatever we want, okay? It means we're freed from sin and freed from the bonds of sin so that we can be bond servants to Jesus Christ and serve him appropriately, as the Bible tells us. And so as we look at this passage in the light of Christian liberty, and specifically in the light of answering this question, should we celebrate Christmas or or holidays as a general rule, okay, I want to point out a couple of important concepts in this passage before we get specific about being applied to Christmas, okay? First, Paul says right away in verse 1, we are to receive those who are weak in the faith. Now, he's referring to other believers who may not be as strong in the faith, as spiritually mature as we may be or as other believers may be, okay? If we're saved, we're all in a different place on that journey of faith. Some of us were saved early in life. Some were saved later in life. Some know the scriptures better. We understand them better uh, than others, okay? But Paul says here, that we are to receive, doesn't matter where we are in that journey, we're to receive all believers, okay? And it says welcome them. That's what that word means. But he says um, we're to receive them, but not to doubtful disputations. Now, he says that they're weak in the faith, and it means they haven't grown as much or are not as mature as others of us may be. One commentator explains this verse this way. He says this characterizes those believers who are unable to let go of religious ceremonies and rituals of their past. The weak Jewish believer had difficulty difficulty abandoning the rites and prohibitions of the Old Covenant. He felt compelled to adhere to dietary laws, observe the Sabbath, offer sacrifices in the temple. The weak Gentile believer had been steeped in pagan idolatry and its rituals. He felt that any contact with anything remotely related to his past, including eating meat that had been offered to a pagan deity and then sold in the marketplace, tainted him with sin. So both the Jews and the Gentiles had very sensitive consciences in these areas and were not yet mature enough to be free from these convictions. So it has to do with backgrounds, Paul says, what we grew up in, and you have to understand the early church was made up of very devout Jews who held the law very strictly in their lives, and when they believed on Jesus as Savior, did not abandon all of those practices. And Paul says that's not necessarily wrong. But then there's the Gentiles who were steeped in pagan idolatry, and when they came into the church as believers, there were things that the church did that they associate with paganism. And so there was this conflict. All right, should we keep the law? Should we live like the Gentiles? Should we not? Okay, all of these questions. And the council of Jerusalem that met in 50 AD had to convene, and all the elders came together, and basically they said, okay, as believers in the church, you don't have to hold to all the rituals of the law. There were only four things that they outlined that you, they said, As far as Gentiles are concerned, they don't have to conform to the law, but they should not eat meat offered to idols. They should not eat blood or any meat that was strangled, and they should keep free of sexual immorality. 
And those were the only four things imposed upon believers within the church. Now, the question about whether the Jewish believers should keep the old uh, rituals of the law, should celebrate the feast, should keep to the dietary restrictions, etc. Okay, Paul said it doesn't matter, and this is exactly what he's talking about here. Because in this passage, we see reference to both eating of meat and to keeping of what we would call holy days or holidays, the feasts and festivals that were prescribed in the law. So Paul's writing to believers here in Rome about the types of conflicts between the strict law-keeping Jews and then what we would call free-from-the-law Gentiles and the problems that arose between them because everybody expected everybody else to do what they were doing. And that became a problem. And so Paul specifically states here that these differences should not be a cause for judging one another or for, a dis- or for arguments, really. It's not an issue to cause division over. And that's the whole context of Romans chapter 14. So Paul's saying here that many believers, some believers will come to strongly held convictions about certain things, specifically in this context, about eating meat. Now, this was not about eating meat offered to idols, I believe. I think it's more about the Jewish restrictions on eating what they declared unclean meat, pork and other things that were like pork. Okay, Remember Peter's vision in Acts 10. God lowered the sheet to Peter in a vision and said, here's all manner of animals and creeping things. Partake with thankfulness because I have made these and given to, the, you've given to them to you for food. And so God did away kind of with those restrictions on the unclean meat, but there were many people who still held to that. And so Paul says, if you choose to do that, that's fine. Just don't impose that on other people. If you choose to celebrate the feasts that are outlined in the law, that's fine. Paul actually did, at least some of them. We know from the book of Acts, he celebrated the Passover. He celebrated some of the other feasts. So he's saying, if you choose to celebrate those feasts as a converted Jewish believer, go ahead. But don't expect everybody else to do what you're doing. There's going to be differences in convictions. And so in the area of celebrating these holy days or holidays, as we would call them now, then we have to apply this principle in order to first decide whether we're going to keep certain holidays, and then second how we're going to celebrate those holidays. And Paul outlines both of those points in this passage. Now, today I'm going to try to answer the question, should we? We'll get to the how uh, at a future time. But the question of celebrating Christmas obviously and certainly falls within the scope of this passage. Now, if you've read the bulletin, I put a thought for the pastor here. There's many believers who celebrate Christmas. There's many people who celebrate Christmas. But they look forward to it more as a week off from work or a few days off from work, a time to get together with friends, a time to have a Christmas tree, to get gifts and give gifts, you know, to put all the decorations up, to to watch the Santa Claus movies and all the rest of the stuff that's on TV. And then, oh yeah, it's Christ's birthday. Okay, that's the point of Christmas in the first place. The name Christmas, and this is actually an argument that people use, well, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas because the Christmas, or the word Christmas comes from Christ Mass, and that's a Catholic thing. They got together to celebrate Christ. 
Okay, yes, that's true. But Christ Mass, that word is actually from the Latin. Okay, Christos is Greek, but it translates very closely to that in the Latin. And then Mass in Latin, M-A-S, means to come. So when we talk about the Catholic Mass, all they're saying is people are getting together. They're coming together. And when you put that Mass with Christ, the word literally means Christ is come. That's the word Christmas. Okay? And that's the point. That's why we have the holiday in the first place. That's what we should be looking at and celebrating and making the forefront of the celebration rather than, oh, yeah, we have to put out the manger scene, and, oh, yeah, we have to remember Luke 2. That's the reason. And so if we miss that, then it doesn't matter what else we, ha- we do or why else we celebrate the holiday. We've missed the point. So we start there, but then we have to answer these questions about why do we celebrate it? Should we celebrate it? And there are many people who think we shouldn't. And Paul talks about esteeming the day in verse 5 or celebrating a certain day as different from other days. And if you look specifically at verse 5, he says, One man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So Paul states here that people will differ on celebrating certain holidays. Now, he's specifically talking about the the feasts and festivals of the law. Okay. Now, if you want to focus just on policy, then okay, we have to apply this only to the law. But the point of Scripture is to give us principles to live by. And so there's a greater principle than just whether we celebrate the feasts of Israel. It's do we celebrate holidays and why in the broader scheme of life? And so Paul is saying here, if you're going to keep a holiday, you may keep it. Somebody else may not. That's okay. People are going to differ on that. But at the end of that verse, he says, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. His reference there, and remember, Paul was very learned both in the scriptures and in the law, and he gives kind of a law law reference there. Think of going before a court And you have to prove to the court that celebrating Christmas is a deeply held conviction because of who you're following in your religion. Could you do that? Or is it just, well, you know, it's Christ's birth and we celebrate it. That's not enough. I mean, it's enough as far as the focus, but to prove to people why you celebrate Christmas you need to have some substance. And that's what Paul says here. Let every man be fully persuaded in his, in his own mind. That means it's up to us to do our homework, to study the scriptures. What are we celebrating? Why are we celebrating it? How should we celebrate it? Based on principles of the scripture. And his primary point is right there at the end. We each need to be convinced in our own mind that this is something that's right to do. It's a conviction, not just a nice idea. We have a biblical conviction about it. Now, I'm going to share with you some substance this morning that may help you start that process of doing that homework, okay? So we have to understand how to use Scripture properly in making these decisions. Now, here's one thing I want to point out to you. 
Just because there is no command to practice something in Scripture, it does not prohibit us from doing something within the function of our Christian lives or within the function of the church. Okay? If God has not commanded us to do it, we can't use that as an excuse to say, oh, then we shouldn't do it. We wouldn't be driving cars if that was the case. We wouldn't be sitting in a building here in church if that was the case. There's a lot of things we couldn't do because the Bible doesn't command us to do them. Now, obviously, if the Bible commands it, it's important for us to pay attention to. But see, all of those areas that fall outside of the direct commands of Scripture, they fall into this area called Christian liberty. We call them the gray areas, okay? And here is one of them. Um, And it, it even applies not just in our Christian lives, but in the functioning of the church, okay? Uh, the Bible, there's a, a principle here, it's called the prescriptive principle, where there are churches and there are groups of believers who believe, well, if it's not commanded, we shouldn't do it. Okay, they won't have musical instruments in their services because the Bible doesn't command them to have musical instruments. They won't do certain things that we do because the Bible doesn't specifically command it. But here's some examples of things we would not have if we were going to do only what was commanded. We wouldn't have a church board because there's nothing in Scripture about a church board. And yet we have one to help us maintain the administration of the church and to satisfy legal requirements as a corporate church. Okay? We wouldn't be using a hymn book. These hymn books, we would only be singing from the Psalms. And I know churches that do that. We would not have instruments. As I mentioned before, we would not have a church building. So there's lots of things that we practice as a church that are not specifically commanded in Scripture, nor are they prohibited. And so it falls under this area of Christian liberty. So we can't use the argument that since God never commanded us to celebrate Christmas, that's why we shouldn't do it. Okay? Paul addresses that right here in chapter 14. In fact, if we were to hold to that argument then we should not celebrate Easter either because that's never commanded in Scripture. In fact, that was a question that the early church back in the 2nd and 3rd centuries approached very seriously. And there were many people who thought celebrating Easter was wrong, especially because Easter, the name Easter, was attached to Ishtar, sounds very similar, who was a false goddess. And so people connected that. Ishtar was a goddess of fertility, and they celebrated and worshipped her, especially in the springtime when life came back to the earth. Sounds like Easter. Same period. Okay? But we wouldn't celebrate Easter. We wouldn't celebrate Independence Day. We wouldn't celebrate Veterans Day. We wouldn't celebrate your birthday, among other things, because those things are not commanded. And so there's no commandment to practice holidays. There's also no specific prohibition from practicing them. So we have to seek the Lord as to whether these are appropriate for us to celebrate or not. And that's this principle that Paul gives us here in chapter 14. We must be fully convinced in our own mind within the area of Christian liberty. Now, let me give you some of the arguments against it and some substance from Scripture. Number one, the arguments of origin. And this is a big one. There are many people who say the church co-opted pagan traditions and celebrations and eventually tried to spiritualize it all in order to redeem Christmas from the culture. Now, I am not going to debate 
whether pagan celebrations around December 25th happened before Christ's birth, because historically we know they did. In fact, cultures around the Mediterranean and across Europe observed feasts of two false gods and, and worshipped on and around December 25th, which marks the kind of the passing of the winter solstice. That usually happens the 20th, 21st of December. Okay, And so they celebrated that in these feasts. The Jews had a festival of lights. The Germans had a Yule festival. Celtic legends connected the solstice with a false god named Baldur, the Scandinavian sun god, who in tradition was struck down by a mistletoe arrow. At pagan festivals of Saturnalia, which came out of Rome, the Romans feasted and gave gifts to the poor, and there was a lot of drunkenness associated with a lot of these feasts, okay? In fact, during Saturnalia specifically, and listen closely to this description of the Roman practice of this holiday before Christ ever came on the scene. Work and business came to a halt. Schools and courts of law closed. The normal social patterns were suspended. People decorated their homes with wreaths and greenery and shed their traditional togas in favor of colorful clothes known as syntheses. Even enslaved people did not have to work Saturnalia, but were allowed to participate in the festivities. And in some cases, they would sit at the head of the table while their masters served them. Instead of working, Romans spent Saturnalia gambling, singing, playing music, feasting, socializing, giving each other gifts. Wax candles called serii were common gifts during Saturnalia to signify light returning after the solstice. Remember, the winter solstice is the longest night of the year. And so they celebrated the growing of light. On the, la- um, on the last day of Saturnalia celebrations, known as the Sigillaria, many Romans gave their friends and loved ones small terracotta figurines known as Signalaria, which may have referred back to older celebrations involving human sacrifice. And so Saturnalia was by far what they referred to as the jolliest Roman holiday. And in fact, the Roman poet Catullus famously described it as the best of times. And so riotous were the festivities that the Roman author Pliny reportedly built a soundproof room so he could work during the raucous celebrations of the time. Sounds like today, doesn't it? So you can see how people would connect that with our celebration of Christmas. Now, the world hasn't changed. The world does all those things, right? Apart from Christ, just as Rome did before Christ was born. So no one disputes the fact that the pagan celebration of Saturnalia and all these other pagan celebrations occurred at exactly the same time that Christ was born. But let me suggest this. Just because a pagan celebration predates the church's observance of a holiday does not necessarily directly connect Christmas with those pagan celebrations. And here's my substance for it. In Scripture, we are told by God, and through the, through the, the narrative of Scripture, Satan is in the business of thwarting God's plan of redemption, of taking glory away from him. And one of his schemes in doing that is to counterfeit all of the wondrous works of God. And he does that to distract people from God's truth and God's work. 
Go all the way back to Moses. When Moses went to Egypt to demand that Pharaoh let God's people go free, he performed several miracles, one of which was he cast his staff on the ground and became a snake. Now the magicians of Pharaoh, who were Satan's servants, cast their staves on the ground and they became snakes as well. And remember, the account goes that Moses' serpent ate up the other ones and then he picked it up and became a staff again. So the magicians of Pharaoh duplicated or counterfeited God's miracle through Moses. In fact, as you get into the plagues, the first plague was to turn the the water of the Nile into blood. And the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 7 that the magicians of Pharaoh also turned water into blood. The second plague was the plague of frogs. And Pharaoh's magicians were able to produce frogs. So Satan is in the work of counterfeiting God's work to distract people from the truth. Think of the virgin birth. I mean, that's really a a primary part of the celebration of Christmas, that Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit miraculously as a virgin, and Jesus was born from a virgin as the Son of God and as the Son of Man to earth. Okay, we know that part of the story. But in Ezekiel chapter 8, God takes the prophet Ezekiel in the spirit to the door of the temple. And we read this in verse 14 in Ezekiel 8. Ezekiel saying that he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Tammuz was a false god. It originated out of Babylon. Katie, could you go get me a cup of water, please? Or I may run out of steam here in about two minutes, and then we'll be done, only halfway through. Okay, so in Ezekiel 8, we see God pointing out to Ezekiel a sin of Israel, specifically where the women were worshiping Tammuz or weeping for Tammuz. Now, we need to know the background about that, okay? And I shared a little bit about that when we went through Revelation 17 and 18, the false religion of Babylon in the end times. Well, it goes way far back before that. And according to uh, one scholar, Dr. Daniel Woodhead, the name Tammuz goes back to the time of Nimrod, the founder of the city of Babel, or Babel, okay? Nimrod was a mighty hunter, the Bible says, who hunted against the Lord, if we look at that interpretation correctly. He was not a godly person. So tradition suggests that Nimrod died a violent death. One tradition says a wild animal killed him. Another says that Shem killed him because he had led the people into the worship of Baal. By the way, Shem was still alive uh, then. We don't know. Okay, according to the ancient Egyptians and Babylonian traditions, the mother of Nimrod was named Semiramis. Okay, you may have heard that name before. Sometimes Semiramis is referred to as the mother of Nimrod, other times as his wife leading to the belief that Nimrod may have married his mother. Okay, now, you start to see the pagan culture and what Satan's doing already. But let me read you the rest of the story, okay? According to these traditions, Semiramis, who rose to greatness because of her son, was presented with this difficulty when her son died. Now she no longer had that authority figure in place. And so, for her own protection and benefit, she pronounced Nimrod to be a god so that she would then be a goddess. 
One story says that after Nimrod was killed, Semiramis claimed that an evergreen tree sprouted from a tree stump near where he was buried. See where this is going? Which, she said, indicated the entry of new life into the deceased Nimrod, a resurrection of a God-man. Hmm. This is thousands of years before Christ was ever born. Every year on the anniversary of Nimrod's birth, which happened to be December 25th, they would leave gifts at this evergreen tree. And even though Semiramis claimed to be a virgin, she actually had another son named Tammuz. We just read about that in Ezekiel chapter 8. Who, she said, was the reincarnation of Nimrod or Nimrod resurrected. So now we have a virgin mother giving birth to a son who is resurrected from the dead. Thousands of years before we ever encounter Christ's birth. Satan is in the process and in the business of counterfeiting God's work to distract people from the truth. Here we have a virgin birth and a resurrection of a God-man in pagan tradition. And so Satan knew exactly what he was doing in counterfeiting God's plan of the Messiah thousands of years before Christ to lead people astray. I mean, if you continue down this path, the discussion of the celebration of Easter also predates the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I already mentioned that. It was the worship of Ishtar. People connected that with Easter. And so, in fact, in the Puritan church, in the early years of our country, they were forbidden from from, uh practicing or celebrating Christmas because of these pagan associations. And this is exactly the foundation that they based it upon. In England, Oliver Cromwell forbade the practice or celebration of Christmas because of this pagan origin that they assumed it came from. And so Christmas, as well as Easter, we assume if we only take that history come from pagan holidays. And if that's the substance of the argument, then we shouldn't celebrate them. But we have to remember that just because a pagan practice predates something similar that we do in, within the scope of Christianity, it doesn't mean that the celebration of that event comes from or has to be connected to those pagan celebrations. Satan wants to distract us from the truth. Satan used these pagan celebrations all through history to distract people from the real events, the coming of Jesus Christ born as a baby in the manger. Heaven celebrated. His death on the cross, his resurrection, the church celebrates that, and we still celebrate that every Sunday. Whether we should celebrate Easter Well, if you don't like Easter, call it Resurrection Day. There's nothing wrong with remembering the resurrection of our Lord. But it doesn't have to be connected just because Satan has tried to counterfeit. We don't take Satan's counterfeits as the substance of our celebration, and we shouldn't. We take the truth and why God allowed those things to occur in the first place. So just because a pagan practice predates something similar does not mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
Let me give you a few quick examples. When Abraham, I'm sorry, when God made his covenant with Abraham, God used a pagan, from a pagan culture, a practice to seal that covenant of splitting an animal in two and laying the parts on, on one side and the other, and then he walked through them. That was a pagan practice to seal covenants, and yet God used that when he gave Abraham his covenant. Um, the name church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Ekklesia was used in the Greek and Roman cultures as a word to mean to call together. And they used that ecclesia to refer to political conventions, religious gatherings that were not the church way before the church ever came into being. That the church now uses ecclesia to name what we are does not make it a wrong thing. God has redeemed that from the culture. And so there's lots of instances of God redeeming so-called pagan practices and using them for his purpose or glory. It's not associating them with the pagan culture. It's seeing the counterfeits that Satan has put out there to distract us from the truth. That's the substance of the argument. Now, here's another argument. I'm going to go quickly through this. What about the date? There's a lot of people. In fact, many scholars through history have told us, well, we shouldn't celebrate Christmas then if you're going to do it because Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. He couldn't have been born. And you can read the scholarship. You can go and look at theologians and their explanations and go back in history, and they'll give you all the reasons why Christ was not born in December or specifically on December 25th. Okay, And the argument goes on to say the early church didn't celebrate Christmas at all until the 4th century when Chrysostom, the bishop at Antioch, associated Christ's birth with December 25th. And then shortly thereafter, Pope Julius I of the church at Rome declared that the date, December 25th, would be the official date of Jesus' birth. And there is when Christmas began. Well, I don't... I'm not arguing that that's not true. Those things did happen, okay? But because these people declared December 25th to be the date, that's not why we celebrate December 25th. And it doesn't matter what some preacher or some pope proclaimed. I think the important thing is what the Bible says. And so let's go to the Bible and find out what the Bible says about the date of Christ's birth. Now, the argument... One of the arguments against December 25th is in Luke 2, we read that the shepherds were in their fields just outside Bethlehem. The angel appeared to them. And scholars and people will say, well, you know, the sheep would not have been in the fields outside of Bethlehem. It would have been too cold or it wasn't appropriate. They would have been up in the fields in the mountains farther away. So they wouldn't have been there. In fact, actually, if you look at history and the... um, That's the word for the weather, the weather patterns, okay, Um, through history. In the climate of Israel, we have to remember that Israel is not northern United States, okay? Their patterns of weather are different than what we get here in in Pennsylvania. And I, I used to teach this in Michigan and say, okay, when you get to Christmas, it's cold and we have snow in Michigan. That's not what it's like in Israel. In fact... Through the fall, the late fall, up until about the middle of November, it's a very dry season in the, in the Near East where Israel is, in the Mideast. Okay? <clears throat> so the fields usually around the big cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem 
are very dry. There's very little vegetation. So the, the shepherds have to take their flocks up into the va- mountains, down into the valleys, farther away to find vegetation to feed their sheep. But near the middle to end of November, there's a rainy season that historically happens in this area. And by the second week or third week of December, all of those dry fields are bursting forth with vegetation. And that's when the shepherds bring their sheep back down nearby those towns for the sheep to eat that new grass. The second or third week of December. And if you go to Israel today, you will still see that happening. I read accounts of several people who visited Israel during the Christmas season, and they were in Bethlehem or in Jerusalem, which is only about eight or ten miles away from Bethlehem, and they saw shepherds with their sheep out in the fields. You could see them from town. So it's not impossible that the shepherds were there. But let's get to the dates, okay? What about the date? Let's look at what the Bible says about this. And you have to go all the way back to Numbers chapter 3, and I'm not going to read all of that just for time's sake. In Numbers chapter 3, and in fact, if you go back to Exodus, God commands Moses to build the tabernacle in Exodus. And he gives all the prescriptions for how it's supposed to look, and part of that was the ordaining of the priests, the sons of Aaron, to be the priests to serve in that temple. By the time you get to Numbers chapter 3, which is just before Israel goes into the promised land, God has already appointed priests, but now he appoints the rest of the tribe of Levi, who are not sons of Aaron, to serve as basically servants in the temple or in the tabernacle at that point. And so all of those who were not direct descendants of Aaron would still serve in the temple, just not in those specific ways that the priests would. So we have that in in um, Exodus and Numbers. When you get to the time of David, in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, David is old, he's at the end of his reign, and one of the things he does before he dies is he sets a schedule for the Levites and their descendants to serve by clan or by order within the temple. Scholars estimate at the time of David there was probably about 24,000 Levites who were not priests. And God had told them they're to serve in the temple. And so David sets a schedule for that, and he divides them into 24 orders, two orders to serve each month of the year. And in verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 10, we're told that the household of Abijah would be the eighth order, and because of where they fall, they would serve in the fourth month. I don't see anybody getting excited about that. I don't don't know why. Okay. Well, it probably wouldn't matter to you until you go to Luke chapter 1. And I want you to turn to Luke chapter 1 very quickly because there's a reason that God tells us about this order of Abijah. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, this is the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias. In verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abijah. Now, you probably have read that many times before and never really thought about that name, Abijah. And yet, you can find that back in 1 Chronicles chapter 24. And so, Abijah 
is the course that Zacharias was in when he went into the temple, remember, to serve, and he's burning incense. And this is when the angel appeared to him and announced the birth of John the Baptist. Now, that was a miracle because Zacharias and Elizabeth, his wife, were very old. They were barren. They had no children. And the angel Gabriel says, you're going to have a son. His name is going to be John. He's going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. Now, why does that matter? Why is that important? Well, here's why it's important, because in 1 Chronicles 24, we have the orders of the, the Levites that David set and the months that they would serve. And so Zacharias, if that schedule had held true from the time of David until the time of Zacharias, he was serving in the fourth month. But we have a problem if you look in history, because two times that order was disrupted. Okay, the first was an invasion and the conquest by Babylon around 586 when Nebuchadnezzar's armies destroyed the temple and all the records and slaughtered millions of people. And so that order was disrupted. When Nehemiah and Ezra brought the people back in Ezra chapter 6, it says they appointed the priests to their divisions and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem. So they reestablished them but they're not on the same schedule because they're starting at a different time. Okay? The second disturbance was much later on in 156 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes brought his abomination of desolation into the temple and stopped all temple worship, set up an idol in the Holy of Holies, and started to kill Jews in Jerusalem specifically. So with these two interruptions, how can we be sure of when Zechariah was serving in the temple? Can we be sure? And I think the answer is we can come pretty close. Okay, the God has given us a basis to start with. If you go back into Pharisaical writings in the Mishnah and the Talmud and the records of the Jewish historian Josephus, they have pinpointed the actual date and day of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem and put down the rebellion of the Jews. In those records, we have records of who was serving in the temple, what order was serving in the temple at that time. And so if you use those historical records, and then using Daniel's 70 weeks, remember when Daniel was told that the Messiah would be cut off in the 69th week, that was his crucifixion, So we know that date from the time of Daniel, and that starts when Israel went back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple in the city. 483 years later, Christ was crucified. And to get to the day, we work backwards from 70 AD to the order that was serving in the temple the year that Christ was born. Now, In Luke chapter 1, verse 10, the Bible tells us that when Zacharias was serving in the temple, the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside. That means it would have been a feast day, not just a normal day. So he's serving during a feast day. And the feast that was uh, occurring when Zacharias, according to the records then, was serving in the temple, happened either in the end of September or the beginning of October. 
okay? And it was the Feast of Tabernacles of that year. And the Bible tells us in Luke 1 that Zacharias burned incense during the first few days of his service. While the whole multitude was still there, that would have been the end of September or the beginning of October. Verse 26 of Luke 1 says, in the sixth month, and then it goes on to tell us about the announcement of the birth of Jesus by Gabriel to Mary. In the sixth month refers to Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy. Okay? And so if the announcement of the conception of Jesus followed five and a half to six months after the conception of John the Baptist, which happened just after Zacharias received that announcement by the angel Gabriel, then Jesus was likely conceived on March 25th. And nine months later would put us at December 25th. And so the Bible actually gives us substance to support the day that we celebrate as the birth of Christ. And it's interesting, if you just take what's in Scripture and put the pieces together, it really doesn't matter a whole lot what all the scholars and all of the naysayers and everybody else says about what happened. Okay? Now, I'm not going to say this is absolute and therefore it confirms it, but there's a very good possibility from Scripture that sometime around December 25th is when Jesus was born. And so the date argument really doesn't hold a lot of water. Now, I've given you all this information and history for this reason, because the arguments against whether the church should celebrate Christmas because of its so-called origins and when we should celebrate it, if we celebrate it at all, those arguments are not necessarily enough substance to make us celebrate it, to keep us from celebrating it. Like I said, Satan's distraction should not be the substance of why we do things or why we don't do things. And I think there's enough evidence in Scripture to support the date that we celebrate Christmas and that heaven celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ. The early church may not have for several years, several hundred years, But you know what? They didn't celebrate birthdays, period. They celebrated deaths, actually, because then they would go and look at the the things that that person had accomplished in their life. But it was about the second or third century that birthdays became more important, that Christmas then was kind of pinpointed by the church, and Chrysostom and others who said Jesus was born December 25th, probably used historical records to come to that date in the first place. So it wasn't a random thing. John 1.14, we read this morning, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus made flesh. That's what we celebrate. And we can celebrate that December 25th. Matthew 1, 22 and 23, Now behold, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated means God with us. That's not Temuz. That's not Ishtar. It's not Semiramis. That is a humble servant woman named Mary, who submitted to God's plan for her to be the the human mother 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus Christ who lived and died and rose from the dead. And so we celebrate his coming at Christmas. We celebrate his resurrection at Easter. And I don't believe there's anything wrong with that based on what we see in Scripture. Now, there are people who will have strongly held convictions that will disagree with me. And Paul says back in Romans 14, that's okay. If you don't celebrate Christmas, if you don't celebrate Easter, Paul says that's okay. But do not make it a point of contention or division. Do not assume and force people to do what you do. It is our choice, given our Christian liberty, if we have substance from God's word, if we have studied and spent time in prayer and asking God, should we do this and how should we do this? And not just do it because everybody else does it. If we're only doing it because everybody else does it, we're in trouble. But I think we have enough substance in Scripture that we can celebrate, not just with a good conscience before God, but glorifying God as we celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ to earth, God with us. And so the question, if we answer that, yes, we're going to celebrate Christmas, then the next question is, how should we celebrate it? And I'm going to save that for next week, and we're going to come back here to Romans 14 and look at that. So we're going to stop there for today. So let's have a word of prayer as we close. Father, thank you again for your word. You teach us many things, even in the small details, if we pay attention. And so, Lord, we thank you for sending your son as a baby, as a humble servant, on that night in Bethlehem. Lord, we believe it could be the end of December based on evidence from your word and evidence from history. But, Lord, it's not so much about the date. It's about the event. It's about the person. So help us not to lose sight of that. Help us not to get caught up in the celebrations or the arguments around Christmas that we lose sight of the fact that this is the focus on our Savior, the coming of our Savior, the promised Messiah who would deliver us from sin and death. And so, Lord, we thank you for this event that you caused to happen 2,000 years ago that was the beginning of the redemption plan. And so, Father, we just praise you and thank you. Help us to go now with this truth in our minds, but looking to serve you, looking to seek you in everything that we do so that you might receive all the praise and glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.